G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. G'day and welcome to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest. We have Robbie from Blood Origins. How are you going, mate? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Early morning. Early morning start, especially, um, I think a lot of people, it's funny, a lot of people like look at Blood Origins, they look at me, it is, you know, luckily, it's the best job I've ever had um, and I do it now full time. But people don't actually realize, and I'm not complaining at all. I just want people <laughs> to sort of get a full breadth of the spectrum of the working hours that is Blood Origins, is that there is no time off. Everyone is, it's 24-7 all around the world. And here we are, 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning uh, podcasting. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but yeah, thank you for the invite. I much appreciate it. Not a problem. You're... Um, uh, you know, a, a very big face over here on the um, hunting side of things. And, you know, um, as a hunting community here in, in Australia, we're facing uh, lots of different attacks on all sorts of hunting around around the area. So what better person to speak to is you, um, you know, get your inputs. You know, you've, you, you know a lot of stuff about hunting and conservation and you're also an outside person looking in on... A, an issue where you know it's a bit different mm. to the north american model and the mm. the african model and everything else it's actually quite an amazing model um that you guys have it's the resources that you have at your fingertips for hunting is unbelievable it's almost rivals new zealand um you've got you know you've got all sorts of deer species you have sandbar you have reds you have fallows you have uh, axis deer, uh, I believe you have hog deer, yep. um, you have, you don't have seeker or do you have seeker? No, we don't, we don't, there's high fence seeker, um, farms, mm. but we have, yeah, rusa, samba, chiddle. Oh, you've got rusa, that's yeah. all, that's the other one I was thinking. Rusa, you've got camels, you've got donkeys, <laughs> you've got buffalo, you've got banting, you've got goats, you've got pigs. Yeah, that's, got, that's the edible uh, ones. <laughs> you got wallabies in ten, in Tasmania. Um, it's an incredible, incredible hunting mecca, man. The only problem is, is that you guys don't have hunting as a culture, and unfortunately, that is the the thing that you guys are struggling with the most right now. It is, you know, hunting used to be a a big cultural part of Australian lifestyle. Um, you know, Wait, in- really? Do you think so? Oh, 100%. Because um, I don't think so. See, growing up, um, I was taught to hunt by my my grandfather, my pop, um, hearing stories about, you know, he he dropped out of school when he was 12 to start working mm. to supplement money. He would shoot foxes and rabbits on the, you know, at night and on weekends. Uh, fox skins were worth quite a bit of money back then. Rabbit skins were 
worth quite a bit and rabbit meat was worth quite a bit. So there was a lot of commercial shooting these introduced species to substitute people's paychecks. So, and also pigs and stuff like that. So, yeah, but that, that, I, that sounds, but it's not something like the entire country did. Like there's no culture, like, like in America, like hunting was like the thing, like in the 1800s, you know, that was the thing. It wasn't the thing in Australia. Yeah, not as big, but we also don't have the, the population as well. So in the rural yeah. areas, it it's always been a semi-big thing, you know, especially before mm-hmm. our um, gun ban and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just as, as everything's progressed, the cities have done what cities do and just shelter everyone from the outside, the outside world. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, you guys have gotten a phenomenal resource and, you know, to be able to hunt it is, yeah, you, it's really a privilege kind of thing. And, and you, you know, you guys are, you know, you have to deal with the baggage that like most, most countries do from a perception perspective, you know, you've got the whole, you know, Mick Dundee, Crocodile Dundee, kangaroo shooting yeah. you know yobbos on the back of the ute in white singlets spotlighting you know kangaroos wallabies and whatever they can shoot you know yeah that whole drinking you know drinking spotlighting yeah it, every every country has their their issues right. with that um but yeah it's 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 definitely progressed and changed over the over the you know last 15 to 20 years um and, you know, become more meat resource rather than people just, you know, going out and just shooting everything. Not saying that, you know, everyone's always done that, but, you know, it's always been perceived as that's what Australian shooters and hunters do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could figure out that meat side of things and you could figure out how to get meat, because you do it with kangaroos. And so I was talking to someone in, in Australia, you've got a vehicle already that's approved by the government of how to get, because kangaroo meat's in the food chain. It is. You can get kangaroo meat, you can get kangaroo, you know, back, uh, just like oxtail, essentially, you can get kangaroo tail. Um, If you guys can figure out how to get more of the venison into the food chain, I think there'd be a major, major culture shift in Australia. It's definitely starting to, um, you know, you go to most popular... um, supermarkets these days and they have almost a game meat section they've got um you know wild pigs kangaroo um some places have camel buffalo crocodile um really camel and buffalo yeah yep because uh how did they get it into the food chain then or is it like behind a high fence and they are it's going to an abattoir and whatnot so commercial shooters um and also mustering so some of those species they'll muster up the camels they muster them up and send them to the abattoirs same with goats we have a huge commercial goat oh, sector goats now is amazing like people like are oh, the goats are the most precious resource right that's a major major market for goat meat yes yeah, so they've gone from pretty much you know everyone would let you shoot them you could go rock up knock on the door and say hey send goats out in the in the paddock, can we go hunt them? Yeah, no worries. And now they're worth, you know, $10, $11, sometimes more depending on the market, a live kilo. So um, wow. one of the properties I was hunting, they had, you know, 150 goats 
in the pens and they're like, yep, there's 16 grand just there sitting there. And he was saying something under, everything under $20,000 is tax-free on it. So Jeez. They were making some big, big money. And I was working at the abattoirs when they first started commercially um, butchering the goats and sending them off. And it's just incredible the the numbers that come through and how quick that, you know, sheep numbers drop to be processing the goats. Amazing. That's amazing. Well, that's what you need, man. That's what you need. You need to use the resource, you know, not only because people then value hunting more, but also, you know, there's the health of the ecosystem that you're that you're after too, right? You've got to balance, especially since all these species, you know, and it's super controversial, whether you want to call them pests or feral species or a game resource. And to me, you know, an introduced resource is probably the best definition for the animal. I don't, we don't see them as a pest at all because I, I don't know, I, I've got a, a, a distinction, like a, a, a sort of a gradient between whether they're valuable and this is, they're either valuable or not valuable, valuable to resources as a resource from a food perspective, valuable from a chase adventure perspective. But then you've got things that are under the line. Like, you know, you could you could t- technically classify pigs as a pest. Yeah. You could technically classify foxes as pests, rabbits as pests, feral cats as pests. Yep, feral cats. <laughs> they make good stubby holders. Um but yes, there's there's definitely those species that are under that line there that can, you know, I've I've spoken to a few people, you know, if you had had the magic button, you know, would you take pigs off the landscape? Yep, no worries. Would you take cats off the landscape? Yep, no worries. Foxes, yep. But then sp- once you start getting towards deer and other species, people are very, you know, as as they should be, um, you know. I and wouldn't... the pig is the one that would have like two two paws in the resource, you know, over the resource line and two paws under the resource line. Depends on where they are, right? If they're like we chased we chased pigs up in the hunter and there were lots and lots and lots of pigs on the property. But I saw I almost saw zero sign of rooting. So I'm like, hmm, they're not having as detrimental of an impact on the environment here than say two hundred Ks up the road. Where they're just rooting up the road, the you know the the bush constantly. Yeah, it's it's such a hard, touchy subject. I and we'll jump into it a bit further. For people that don't know you, we'll jump in. We'll do jump back to the start. Um, get to know you. Sure. Where are you from, Robbie? Um, originally South Africa. Um not born and raised, but born in Brazil, but moved to South Africa when I was very, very small. So I lived pretty much half of my life in Australia, uh, Australia, South Africa. Um, but I have an affinity to Australia. My mom's Australian. It's the dark side of my family. We don't <laughs> like to admit that I'm half Australian. Um, but uh, especially when it was like South Africa versus Australia and the rugby games, right? It was the entire <laughs> family against my mom. But my mom's got a big family in Sydney. My brother lives in Sydney. My three nephews and his wife live in Sydney. So yeah, um, love love Australia, love the landscape, um, you know, went to Australia often as a small kid. And uh, yeah, just grew up in South Africa, loving the bush and whatnots. And 
as most young South African boys, you want to become a game ranger. You want to be in conservation. And so that's what I wanted to do and quickly realized that game ranging was not going to be what it what it's sort of glamorously supposed to look like. Um, so then chased a degree and I was I was really interested in wetlands and swamps. That was sort of my thing. I loved them from when I was like 16 years old. So I studied to become a wetland ecologist. Yeah, beautiful. And did a Bachelor of Science, did a Bachelor of Science in Honours, did a Master of Science all in wetlands, and then decided that I was sort of fed up with the university system that I was under in South Africa and just started looking all around the world. And, uh, you know, it's all about where your life leads you because I actually got accepted into a PhD program in Australia looking at fire and wallaby interactions on an island. I can't remember which island now, but anyway. But then I also got invited and accepted into a PhD program in, in Mississippi, in America. And I took the one in Mississippi. I don't blame you. And that's how I, and that's how I landed in Mississippi. And uh, that was almost 20 years ago now. Actually, it's May the 28th now. June 4th will be my 20-year anniversary. That's, and, a, that's um, awesome. Yeah. And so I've, I came here, did a PhD, became a professor. Was a professor for six years, worked in the consulting game for another 10 years, essentially. And then um, halfway through the consulting game, started this idea that is Blood Origins and what it's supposed to be um, has evolved. Um, but really now, once once we decided, we found a business model that fit with what we did. We're, we're a charity. We we're a 501c3. You know, the support is all tax deductible. Um, we sort of ex really, really exploded and expanded our footprint around the world um, to what we can do, what we can say. And yeah, Australia is like our third biggest footprint in the world. Um, I think we have just over 4,000 people in a closed Facebook group. We have um, yeah, Canada and America are the only two countries above Australia in terms of support and engagement. So that's yeah, awesome. that was a little bit of roundabout way about where I'm from and who I am. No, that's, that's beautiful. That's exactly where I wanted to go down. You know, one of the questions I, I, I had down here was about the pH PhD and the whole waterfowl yeah. side of things. And you, you covered that straight off the bat. So that's, that's awesome. Um, did you ever expect blood origins to become a worldwide thing when you're kicking it off? No, not really. You know, I was, if you had asked me when we started, what is Blood Origins when it started, it was almost like I was, I, I, I guess I was enamored with this idea of a hunting show. You know, I loved the idea of the Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel being on TV kind of thing, just like everybody else, right? And so I didn't realize that there were thousands of other people just like me looking to do the same thing. And so that's why, luckily, nobody gave us money. Nobody ever said, yes, we'll give you this. You belong to us, you know, kind of thing. Nobody ever did that. We sort of set us apart because we kept doing what we were doing without anybody sponsoring us or partnering with us. And that's why we are who we are today and that we're completely autonomous. We don't belong to anyone, even though a lot of people support us and give us funding. We don't belong to a camo company. We don't belong to a – we wear what we want. We, wear, we do what we want. We use what we want. Um, 
but yeah, I thought we were going to be a, a TV show. And the TV show was going to be about showcasing the heart of hunters. It wasn't about me, which again is a little, which is again different in the hunting world and the hunting model. It wasn't an ego trip. It wasn't centered on me. It was all about everyone else. And I wanted it to be shot differently. I wanted it to feel different. I wanted it to look different. And so that's what our Blood Origins episodes do. You know, the if you if you've ever watched the Blood Origins episode, it's always we're never in a quarter turn interview type setting. Every other interview, if you look at any other any other interview, whether it's on your news t- station or a hunting show, and they're interviewing someone, it's always a quarter turn interview. And what a quarter turn interview is is the person who's interviewing him, like you're interviewing me, is looking at the person. And they're looking at the other person and they're they're not looking at the camera. They're looking at the person. Yeah. Well, ours, our interview is the person looks at the camera and looks down the barrel of the camera because I want the person to engage the person watching them on the other side of the camera. I'm thinking about who's watching, not me, who's interviewing. And so we just added that element we've got another couple of elements that we add in just to make it a little bit more personal a little bit more emotional a little bit more engaging and that's how we started and that's what i wanted i just wanted like people's stories and again thankfully nobody said yes to my idea they all said oh it sounds great um and and you know it's interesting jim shockey who we interviewed in the blood origins episode said to me once he said you know i would have lost money in you disappearing (laughs) Because you just kept coming, you kept emailing me, you kept saying, this is this, this, and this, and you just kept sending me an episode and an episode and an episode and an episode and an episode, and you're just relentless. Um, and so I guess that's sort of one of my superpowers is, one, I had a very, very patient wife that allowed me to drain my savings account. <laughs> and then I was, I'm also very patiently persistent. And so that's worked out very good for what Blood Origins is now, you know, fighting for yeah, conservation you, and hunting. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you know, a lot of people say, man, you guys put out a lot of content. Yeah, we do. But it's just consistent. We're just constantly dropping something, constantly pushing, constantly, constantly, constantly on top of the ball. And yeah, now we're a, a global, like probably the only global voice for hunting period definitely um especially someone who's willing to say something yeah exactly it's um definitely a breath breath of fresh air having someone out there as into it as you are um you know there's issues popular popping up all around the globe and the first name that pops up is yours just yours That's and right. blood origins just right there on it you know yeah just if there's an issue, people are straight onto you, sending you emails and straight over Instagram and Facebook. Just yeah, you don't want to look at my phone when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> it is a mess. There's, I hate a phone that has um, you know, there's two kinds of people in this world. So this even, I'm showing you my phone. This bothers me that there's like a couple red of boxes. red dots on the phone right now. Right now, that bothers me. That's me. I'm that kind of person. I'm not the kind of person who has a red dot that says a thousand emails unread. I'm like, oh my God, how do you live with yourself? Yeah, I'm the same. You've got a thousand emails unread. (laughs) And so that phone looks like a sort of murder board when I wake (laughs) up in the morning. It's just red dots everywhere. Emails, WhatsApp, messages, 
Facebook messages, Instagram DMs, Twitter direct messages, you name it. It's all like, because the world doesn't sleep in terms of hunting. So we've got to sleep sometimes. (laughs) Exactly. So jumping back to the PhD, what made you, so you said the love of waterfowl and swamps and yeah that what why do you have a passion for that why did why is it you went down that? great question yeah great question when i was 16 years old my grandfather was russian my grandfather lived like and this is part of like impetus of like blood origins and my hunting heritage and whatnot my grandfather was born to a russian mother and a german father and his german father died when he was one years old so she moved him the russian mother moved him back to russia and they lived in a place called Khabarovsk, which is way, way, way far east Russia, literally on the sort of border of Siberia and northern China. And that's where he was raised. Khabarovsk, Vladivostok. Um, he, he moved to Harbin when he was a teenager. Um, so he lived, he told me he lived the two hunting meccas this world had to offer. He hunted Siberia, northern China. He hunted white-eared pheasants in Tibet. You know, he was just this kind of guy. And then he moved to Africa in the 50s and hunted the Africa in the heyday of Africa. He was also, when I was growing up, he was also a big bridge player, which is a card game. And the the newspaper in South Africa at the time used to have, a um, just like a, today, if you got the newspaper still today, you'd get a crossword puddle or Sudoku or whatnot. Our newspaper used to have a bridge solution. Like, here's a move that you could do in a bridge game. And he told me, he says, for two years, gives you an idea of my grandfather, for two years, you have to cut out the bridge solution every single day. So it's like nine, 740 bridge solutions. <laughs> and after you do that, I'll take you wherever you want to go for a 16th birthday trip. And so that was the deal. And so then we getting closer and closer to the 16th birthday, I started getting interested in hunting. And that's where the letter comes from when the in the blood letter that I have still, I must have said I was interested in going hunting when I was 16 for my, my trip. Uh, but we could never pull it off. I don't, and I don't know how serious he was or what was happening behind the scenes. Like my mom and dad going, no, 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 no. You're not taking him hunting kind of scenario. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> well, what happened was fortuitous, you know, divine intervention he said no we can't go hunting let's go somewhere else and so well let's go to the Okavango swamps it's this major deltaic system a river system that instead of uh, entering into an ocean like most rivers delta delta into it deltas into a desert tectonic activity caused the river to shift course and it ends in the desert in the middle of botswana it's a super super incredible system lots of islands lots of swamps big five the water is super, super, super clear. Five meters deep, you can see hippo footprints on the bottom of the water as you're like sliding through on a on a little canoe kind of scenario. And that's where I fell in love with swamps. Wow. And that was it. I was one of those guys that knew exactly what I wanted to do very, very early on in life. And that was that. So what led to the hunting side of things? You, you said you were interested into in hunting you know around 16 you've gone and done done this um expedition and checked checked out this delta where did the hunting side of things come from after that it only came when i when i arrived in the states okay because for literally for the next 
you know, that was 16. I left as I was turning 25. So the next 10 years in, in South Africa, I didn't know what hunting was. I didn't interact with hunting. I, my circle of friends didn't hunt it, didn't hunt. Um, we lived in, I lived in Johannesburg, eight and a half million people. You know, game ranging was the thing for me. Like that was what I, you know, had weapons with. It's how I interacted with the bush. How I showed people the bush, learned about the bush. Um, but no, hunting wasn't even a question. Like I didn't even think about it. We didn't talk about it. None of that. All I had was the stories that my grandfather had, some of the trophies that my grandfather had, and that's about it. Um, I only started thinking about hunting and wanting to participate in hunting is when I came to the States because I met some friends that were sort of redneck country guys and they all hunted and they're like, you want to come hunting? I was like, yeah, I think so. That sounds good. And they're like, well, you need a hunting license and you need to get a hunter's education. So I had to go through all that. And then once I did, that was that. Did a good old, you know, redneck yobbo hunting experience for two, three years in which, you know, we, we went to the, in Mississippi, we were about an hour away from like the sweet potato capital of Mississippi. And we'd go down there and they would have like crates full of like fermented sweet potatoes, sweet potatoes that would, you know, gross or um, didn't meet the standard, right? And they were free at that time. Like today, they're super expensive, not super expensive, but you have to pay for them. Now they get, they're making money yeah. from the offcuts. But back then it was come get them however much you want. And we used to load up a trailer full of like these sweet potatoes and we used to bring them back to the farm where we would hunt and we'd drop them in locations just like sort of baiting piles. And um, baiting was illegal then. I think it's past the um, statute of limitations, but you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's what we used to do. Sweet potatoes with for white-tailed deer and does and that's how we used to hunt. Um, and that was just my introduction to to hunting and slowly but surely started evolving and learning more and wanting to do more. And I got in the consulting job and had a little bit more money in my pocket and started exploring, you know, bigger hunts. And that's how hunting came to be. And that's sort of how Blood Origins came to be then is that I was thinking about, I knew like why I hunted from a, from a, ecology biology perspective but i couldn't i couldn't really explain to my then five and three year old like why from an emotional perspective or a heart perspective or transparency perspective because i was so new at it yeah and so i needed to i felt like i wanted to talk to people and figure out their reasons for why they hunted and that's what was the impetus for the hunting show and, and telling other people's stories was that was like, tell me your why, because I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it on outdoor channel, sportsman's channel. I couldn't find it online. All I could find was people, you know, hooping and hollering when they shot something. And I was like, uh, that, that's, you know, are we, is that what we're doing? Are we celebrate? Because that's what we could understand at the time was that sounds like you're celebrating the kill, like you're celebrating killing that animal. I was like, oh, it's got to be more to that. It's got to be a little deeper than that. And that's the journey we undertook. Yeah, well, that's incredible. You know, I'd, I'd probably heard it along the podcast along the way somewhere. Um, but, yeah, I, I figured you would have got, got your starts in 
in South Africa um, hunting. So that's that's pretty. Cool. I hunted like I hunted pigeons and doves twice yeah. with my grandfather, and my father, but it wasn't like we're going to take you hunting so that then from we migrate from shotguns onto rifles onto let's go chase impala kind of thing. No, it was I don't know, man. It was it was super weird. I had you know, the most amazing resources of a grandfather and a father, actually. And we never got, like, we never sat around a fire and they told us grandiose stories of elephant hunting or or buffalo hunting or crocodile hunting. None of it. Like, there was not a single story given to us. Yeah, wow, that's so, incredible. It's incredible to see that you've come on, a, as Ben O'Brien says, a, um, an, a Oh, what what is it? Not late adult onset hunter. No, he doesn't use that one. Emergent hunter is what. what oh, he, emergent hunter. Emergent. He hated that because he it says it. He he thinks it sounds like a disease, an early onset <laughs> hunter. <laughs> I like that. I like um, that. So yeah, that's that's incredible that you've come so far. So what's your bread and butter hunting these days? What's what's your go to? I don't have it anymore unfortunately like no. i hardly get to hunt anymore um but we're changing that we're changing that because because uh, and the reason i say that is this is that the last almost five years i've had two jobs essentially right i've been building blood origins in my spare time so yeah. um like 2021 i'll give you an idea 2021 was like the crescendo of blood origins and everything going on i hunted three days total in the year and not a single minute was with one of my kids. So yeah, we're trying to change that. If you know, my bread and butter now will be whitetail. It's prolific around here, easy access, yeah. a liberal limit in Mississippi, um, good limit in Tennessee too. It's a good freezer filler. Um, turkeys in the spring. If I'm here, turkey hunting is the thing, but then there's also just good little hunting all around that you can take the kids squirrel hunting. It's a pretty lengthy season. You can go squirrel hunting, um, ducks. I'm in the sort of mecca of duck hunting in the world. I'm only about an hour or two from the mecca of duck hunting in the world. So we're in good position now. I moved the family last year to a place, Memphis, Tennessee. And so now I'm, I'm a lot more centrally located for hunting. And this upcoming season will be the first like real, I think, season that I'm here Last year, we were still like unpacking and getting stuff squared away and whatnot. So, yeah. And then I'm just being cognizant of being in very, very cool places around the world and seeing meeting cool people and taking up the opportunities when provided to me to to hunt with those individuals. So, like I was in Australia after our New Zealand trip and um, – Got a little homesick essentially, so I pushed my flight a week earlier. So, I, um, but Nick Morton and the crew at Bow Hunting only was like, "Come, come hunt for a, you know at least a day with us." And it was the most amazing day of bow hunting I've ever experienced. So, period. are you a bow hunter yourself, or are you rifle hunter? You're just tagging along with. Nick? So I will say this: I'm pretty much a rifle hunter. Like I'm a boomstick kind of guy. I like it. Um. And when people said, do you bow hunt? I said, yes, I bow hunt. I'm not a bow hunter. Okay. That is a very clear distinction. Like that is not my jam, but I can see why it's your jam now after that day of bow hunting. Yeah. It was like, we were up close and personal. 
I would say six times, seven times with animals in a day within 20 yards of an animal that we had stalked into. Two of those times we were within 10 yards of an animal, eight yards of an animal. It was ridiculous. It was brilliant. Yeah, brilliant Nick, pig hunting, brilliant goat hunting. It was brilliant. Yeah, Nick's an incredible hunter, and he's he's got some amazing amazing property with some amazing animals on on that side of the country. That's for sure. From you know mountain boars to mountain billies to reds and fallow. So uh, yeah, I definitely. No, it was an incredible experience, man. And I can understand why people bow hunt now. Yeah, more, it's more essentially. I knew that why you bow hunted before, but now just because of how close of an experience you had and it was all day it was a target rich environment right i went out with five arrows in my quiver and came home with one arrow it was just <laughs> brilliant it was brilliant yeah in a in a well managed managed area the, those places can be um great but uh yeah we're having having issues with all of that but we'll get into all of that stuff later um, Where are you based, Zach? I'm in Adelaide. Um, right, okay. I'm about an hour from Craig Merton. So okay, sweet. Um, yes, beautiful part. You know, we've got lots of game here. All private property. Um, unfortunately, no public land apart from for duck hunting. Uh, but that's slowly changing. So the south. The, I know you're about. You want to talk about this? Well, I'll, I'll steer the direction there. So the south. You know, the South Australia bow hunting ban right now. Yep. Um, nothing has moved as I understand it. It's still sort of just like, we're going to do this, but we're not actually acting on it right now. But then I saw an article that said, oh, we're going to enact this ban, but it's only going to be on public ground. It's not going to be on private ground. What is that? So what it is, it's, for people that don't know about the band, we've spoken about it in depth a few times on this podcast, but Susan Close, the, um, I think she's yeah liberal, liberal MP, the deputy, uh, deputy MP. She has some sort of ties with RSPCA and other groups wanting to ban bow hunting. She apparently is pre-election promise that it was going to be banned, but there was, there's no documents or no proof of that being a pre-election promise or a public one anyway. Um, so, yeah, she's she's moved moved that on after we had an inquiry into bow hunting about two and a half years ago now, and it was deemed, deemed to be, you know, fine, and, you know, if they were going to do anything, they were just going to license it. Um, mm. But, yeah, they've, they've been... It came out oh, probably a year ago. Would have been now um, that yeah, they, they come it's out. It's been say, a long time. It's yeah. not like it's being moved on at all, or like it's not like this. Like yes, we're driving this forward right now. It's just almost like lingering. So yeah, um, Chas, uh, someone from Chassa made it, um, like forwarded it on to me saying this is what's going on. I spoke with people that do firearms legislation stuff here in, in Australia, Firearm Owners United, and spoke to them about it, brought it to their attention. They said, look, there's nothing that can really be done until it's tabled. Um, you know, just just look, keep an eye on it, but, you know, don't freak people out. And Chassa was, you know, messaging me saying, you know, share it around, share it around. Um, so I was just taking advice from other people then, You've started sharing it. Um, some 
it started coming out in the public. So it it blew up pretty quick once you you got on it, and I started sharing it around with some of the groups and forwarding it on. You know, I'm, I messaged everyone from Meat Eater, forwarded it to them, you know, Ben O'Brien, just trying to get it as public as possible, you know. South Australian bow hunting community is not huge because um, we've got, what, 1.2, 1.3 million people in South Australia, and there's probably only a couple thousand people maximum that bow hunt. If that, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so yeah, we we made all that public. We started getting responses from Susan Close. She jumped on the radio, did that radio interview. I jumped on there as soon as I could call up. Um, I was pretty emotional at the time, and then yeah, since then it's been pretty much radio silence. Oh yes, that's right. You did get on the radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. That guy wasn't having any of you. Oh, no. He gave you oh. like five or ten seconds and was like, all right, mate, you're out. Yeah, no, his, I, I was I was red. I was I was working at the time. I was in the truck. I had it, had it on, you know, the speaker, and then, yeah, he hung up on me, and I just, I'm just like, that's it. Where's his station? I was going to drive down there. and <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was the person I was working with, He he's like, He's like, I've never seen you angry, and I was just as red as a beetroot. I was fuming, windows down, aircon on, just trying to cool cool myself down. I was, yeah, was not happy about how how much she he gave gave her, and then just shut shut it down straight away. Um, yeah, he definitely was. Uh, yeah, he definitely was a little biased in his, <laughs> his opinion, just a little bit. And I think it was like the next day. I was at a job unloading uh, unloading plasterboard. I look up and there's the station's logo. I'm like, oh, I could go up into the lobby and uh, have my say. <laughs> but yeah, Crazy. so since then it's been it's been pretty dead. Um, there's been a couple- yeah, it hasn't come up at all, and it's almost like I, I struggle in these scenarios. In that, do you still make noise? Because that gives them, it, it almost is like, if you give them noise, if you make noise, it almost is fueling their fire, and you really don't want to fuel their fire. You want to quench their fire. Um, but is it the fact that you're not making noise helping them because they're slowly working things behind the scenes? You have no idea. It's a very, very sort of delicate tightrope to, to walk. Yeah, exactly. And the way things work here, it has to... From what I understand, it has to be tabled through the parliament, but there's not much you can do until it's until it's tabled. So all the noise you make before that, you kind of make yeah. yourself look like an idiot because there's they're like, hey, we yeah. haven't even put it forward yet. Why are you, why are you freaking out over over something yeah. we haven't even done yet? So that's it's it's such a hard hard subject with it. You know, it seems that they've been focusing more on the whole duck stuff of late mm. between Victoria and South Australia. Um, I just got mm-hmm. forwarded a bunch of stuff that a couple of the wetlands that um, are open to duck hunting um, for the public are getting converted into national park. So it'll be yeah, open, for, that. open for more people to go do stuff in, but hunting's going to be banned in that. Well, that's again, it's a ridiculous thing because, Duck hunting season is 30 days, 45 days, 60 days. Like, 
you can have it a national park. You can have it for everyone else, but it's 60 days, man. It's like, it's hardly anything of the year in terms of engagement. And they're, they're probably only hunting in the morning anyway. So it's half of that, you know? Yeah. What are your thoughts on the whole um, proposed duck hunting bans in Victoria and South Australia? I know you did a podcast with sure. an, another biologist from South... Yeah, Paul think, Brown. Yep. Yep, Paul Brown from Victoria. Victoria, yep. um, about it all. Um, you know, a lot of Victorians and South Australians on the hunting side think these duck counts that the GMA are doing are a biased type count you know um one of my oh it's 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 tough right that's 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 a tough discussion to have because and here's why gma has a a scientific methodology for their surveying technique to count ducks okay any scientist around the world if they disagreed with that methodology would say it's wrong and they would say you need to do it this way it's 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 almost half a dozen of one six of another and i don't think it's an argument that is worth pursuing because they've they created this methodology and here's why it's so important objectively to be able to confidently give an estimate of any population you have to have a methodology for counting and you have to stick with it if you decide to change it today then your counts before the change of methodology are now irrelevant. And you have to then stick with that methodology moving forward to then get an appropriate population estimate. So I think that, you know, the idea of going off to the methodology, are oh, you missing these waters courses, you're missing these rivers. Yeah, then it may be, it may be right, the argument, but I don't think you're ever going to change GMA in terms of their methodology of counting ducks. Duck populations inherently go up and down with drought. Um, I think that, I think then what we should be focusing on there is, you know, it, there's just some, there's just some craziness when it comes to like discussions and decisions made on like shooting hour, shooting times, like eight o'clock in the morning, like that's when it opens. I get the sort of, um, I get almost what they're doing is protection because the antis are in the water with them, which would be crazy to sort of experience that you got these people in the water in your freaking decoy setup and whatnot. What I heard this year is that because you guys have had so much rain, there's so much water in Victoria for people to duck hunt. These guys don't know where people are duck hunting anymore. Yeah. So it hasn't been an issue. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, and again, this, <clears throat> I think when you boil it down, South Australia bow hunting, Susan Close and RSPCA, Victoria duck hunting, Andy Medic and the Animal Justice Party, we're not seeing these things come about and not coming to fruition because of the uh, last 12 months of work. They're coming together because of the last 10 years of work. And they, the, the rhetoric has been put in place very, very artfully and very methodically for the last 10 years. Duck hunting is murder. Duck hunting is bad. Duck hunting is how dare you 
shoot these innocent ducks. It's a rhetoric that they've been pushing for 10 years. And now it's it's taking traction and it's getting hold. You know, the, again, the purpose of Blood Origins is like, what has been our rhetoric for the last 10 years? Yep, exactly. Um, it's It's such a hard subject, especially with hunters always being in defense mode when it comes to this type of stuff, you know, we, we get, you know, our shackles up and we're like, we're just all attack and defend, you know, um, where, like you said, these people have been working at it quite somewhat quietly behind the scenes. You know, they, they take a few ducks that have been wounded every year, go chuck them in a freezer and, you know, in five years time, they've got 50 to 80 ducks that they, they unfreeze in the front of parliament house on a big sheet saying duck hunting's bad. They got a pile of used shotgun cartridges there, you know? Um, and what do we do as hunters? We attack the people that put all of this in, in favor for us, GMA, you know, it, it seems that we're barking at, at the wrong, the wrong people when it comes to that type of stuff from an outside perspective what what do you think about the whole hunters barking at gma rather than no i think that i think that i think any government agency needs to be held accountable accountable so i think you know talking very rationally about you know methods and whatnots and surveys i think is appropriate i think you know the the question would be like you know what is wrong with their methodology? What could be added? Could you help them add? You know, kind of thing. If 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 you think it's, if you think GMA is doing it wrong, is there a way that you can help them by adding on? Like if they're not surveying X Creek, X Stream, X whatever, is there a way that you can create a methodology that's very simple and sorry, not simple, is very similar? almost almost identical to what they're doing so that you can marry up their method with your method and add to their accounts essentially um, add information because they're a government agency too they're constrained by budgets too and so you can't just say you do this or you do that well no we don't have the budget we don't have the manpower you know foster a relationship it's it's almost i don't know it's almost like there's a and I and I find this hard to believe, but then again, politics is politics. But I find it hard to believe that the GMA in Victoria is biased. I find it hard to believe. Now, people are listening to me saying, oh, Robbie, you, you're being naive. Maybe I am. But I know, for instance, the GMA in, in, in Victoria is the same as like the Mississippi Wildlife Fisheries and Parks, right? Do you have people that work for MDWFP and GMA that don't like hunting? I doubt it. Yeah. Because they're all biologists, right? These guys are, they, they were, that's what they studied. They're interested in looking after the resource. They're interested in looking out of na native flora and fauna and whatnot. And they're supposed to be unbiased. They're scientists, they're biologists. They're doing what they best can for the resource that's a sustainable resource for the people. Yeah. And so the fact that GMA has, have they conspired with 
the government that changes all the time, GMA people don't change all the time, maybe the higher ups, the person who's in charge here, maybe a political position, you know, to align more with the Animal Justice Party and whatnot based on their service, I, I doubt it. I doubt it, I doubt it, I doubt it. So I think they're doing the best they can with the money that they have, with the budget constraints that they have. Could things be better? Of course, anything can be better. Any method can be better. Um, so, yeah, it's, and I don't know. And so then the last thing I'd say is people are like screaming and screaming down the podcast interview now saying, but, 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 and I said, and then, but then you, they come out with these recommendations of like duck seeds and length. Um, but then I don't know, maybe you can help me answer this. I thought GMA this year came out with, it was going to be a full season. It was going to be like six weeks or nine weeks. They came out with that. It was only going to be four birds a day. I was like, okay, that's pretty good. Then who 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 cut it back to thirty days? Was it GMA or the legislature? Um, not entirely sure when it comes to that. Um, I know you know everyone kicked up a fuss on social media about it. Um, they have these public consultation periods where you know they they put out this is what we want to hear from. You know, we want to hear from both sides. These are the points that we want to uh, that we want to hit and hear about. And um, when it all came out, there was maybe two or three people that hit the points that they wanted. Um, everything else was just emotion. It was either emotion from the anti side saying, you know, we don't want duck hunting at all, zero bag limit, ban it, rah rah rah. And then hunters were like, we want triple bag limits because we've had lower bag limits the last few years. We want this, we want that. And it was just not covering anything that they they were asking for. So I think they kind of sit there and go, look, you know, we'll be conservative. We won't give a massive bag limit and we won't upset the that like animal rights people and we won't give no bag limit to not upset the hunters and we'll just be conservative on that type of thing. They put out the um, recommendations and then yeah, yeah. I think think the premier may be the last, the last okay on it and then they've worked it out from there. Um, but yeah, like you said, they've got the late starts on it as well because you've got all the protesters out there causing issues you know in the past i've heard of you know tires being slashed on hunters vehicles feces being smeared over cars and door handles and all sorts of stuff it it gets pretty pretty bad out there and it's always the same the same animal rights people that are out there they get taken off by police and they're always back out there the next year which is very unfortunate Crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, it's a delicate situation and it's got politics involved and um you know. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's also centered around a duck population estimate that varies over time and that's going to have to play a role in seasons and season lengths and bag limits and whatnot. So Yeah, exactly. It's it's a very something I've always avoided is politics. I hate politics. I don't like politicians. I've always avoided it. But since getting heavier and heavier into hunting, it just seems I'm getting dragged and dragged. Especially doing the podcast now, you know, everything gets gets sent sent to me, and then I discuss it on the podcast, and it just <laughs> it's, it keeps getting 100%. deeper and deeper rabbit hole. Um, I'm learning 100%. more about politics than I than I've ever wanted. 
But well, you're, you're truly understanding now why, you know, how the world works kind of scenario. You know, people are a little naive when it comes to understanding how things work. And as soon as you dive into it, you're like, shit, politics are like they're key. You have to understand and you have to play them the whole kid and caboodle. And, and that's exactly what you're doing with Blood Origins, but not only doing it in one country, every country that has an issue with, <laughs> with, with hunting, yep. you're diving straight into it head first, which is just, just incredible. Um, you know, I've, one of my mate, good mates, Dan, he, he idolizes what you do. He's a, um, wildlife, he's a, he's a biologist and just, just finished his degree, um, you know, looking at getting into the side of work. He runs the Eureka tactical um, stuff that I've tagged. He does a lot of the write-ins for, um, you know, the duck the duck um, consultation period and stuff like that as a biologist side of things. He's done it with the deer as well when they've done the feral deer um, consultation as well, which is just another, another deep rabbit hole. Being, looking at it from overseas and then looking into Australia you said you know we've got a fantastic somewhat fantastic wildlife model because we have all these different species you know we can hunt 365 days a year 24 7 whether it's you know bow hunting rifle hunting spotlighting for pest control on these types of animals looking at it from the North American side like you get a lot of people go oh Australia should have a North American model um Mm. which you know it's it's hit and miss whether it's something like that would work over here because everything we hunt is an introduced species and whether you see it or not it's having damage on the environment which a lot of hunters do not want to talk about you like you you were saying that um you didn't see the damage that feral pigs were causing on that one particular property you're on but you don't know if they were digging up the next <laughs> the next property as Agreed. well Right. Looking looking into the feral animal side of stuff, like what do you think hunters should be doing? Like, you know, we've got all this helicopter culling, all this poisoning, you know, hunters mm. want the animals to be there. It's mm. Well, the problem is they're introduced, right? So they have an impact to native fauna and flora. So as hunters, we need to recognize that, number one. Number two... If you recognize that, then you have to understand that those species need control. The population needs to be managed. It happens everywhere in the world. Same thing has to happen in Australia. So then you ask your question, who manages them? Who's going to manage them? And the hunters will say, let the hunters manage. Yes, that is possible. Um, and New Zealand, if you want to talk about like a slivers of the North American wildlife model, New Zealand has has taken a little bit of that and put it into the ballot system, which is find the best places, have organizations run it, wrest control away from the government, and you do the population control on it. Fjordland Wapiti Foundation is the is the sort of gold star standard in New Zealand. Tar Foundation is hoping to take over their tar ballots. I've heard of rumors of a, a Red Deer Foundation starting in the next year or so. Um, got the Seeker Foundation doing the same thing. But a lot of people don't realize that those foundations, let's just use Ford, Fjord and Wapiti Foundation as an example. Fjord and Wapiti Foundation is removing a thousand Wapiti a year off their areas. 
people are like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Why are they removing? Because they have to. For the health of the ecosystem and for them to keep control of the place away from the government, you have to maintain a population balance. Now, Wapiti Foundation has said, well, we are balancing for trophy animals, which is what probably most hunters want. And so, yes, recreational shooters can go in there, okay? So if outside of the ballot blocks in Fjordland, and again, this can be, you know, this I'm using Fjordland as an example, but let's use it the highlands of Victoria as an example here, okay? Hunters can go in at any time of the year and take animals. Doesn't matter. But they do not take enough animals to manage the population. And there's studies that have shown that you need commercial contractual mechanisms to manage populations. You know, when put in recreational hunters' hands, 30% of those operations fail from a management perspective. So I think hunters can adopt a little bit of the North American model in that you can build a ballot system that sort of selects for a certain class of animals, whether that's a trophy class of animal or not. You're still going to need management. That management can occur by recreational hunting, but more than likely it's going to need to happen with commercial hunting or commercial take and even government control. And so Here's where the sort of relationship then from a politics perspective then begins more and more is that, say, for instance, Victoria, Sambar, or let's take Tasmania, fallow deer, which is in the news right now. Um, could the, the deer hunters of Tasmania form a relationship with the government around like a ballot system where they're generating money? to do the work, to help the government out. We'll pay for the helicopter shooting. We'll pay for the, you know, that kind of stuff. But hey, we want one of our fallow deer, call it the fallow deer foundation. Then we want one of the fallow deer foundation people in the helicopter with the guys shooting, right? So when they take out, you know, five animals, they leave the two thumpers and they take out the two scragglers and the doe. And so now you're managing a population that needs to be managed because, again, you have to recognize that these populations have to be controlled, not eradicated, controlled. And also at the same time, you're benefiting the resource. The deer are going to be healthier. The deer are going to be fatter. The deer are going to be better off. The environment's going to be better off. The environment's going to be healthier. The native flora and flora are going to be healthier. And you're selecting for something that hunters value that they'll pay money for. Yeah. Which then feeds back into the system, which feeds back the cycle. That is obviously an opportunity that Australia hasn't hasn't capitalized on yet. I don't know if they can just I don't know. It who knows? Um, but there's an opportunity there. It's definitely a great way to look at it and New Zealand does have a fantastic model. You know, I just come back from, from there, end of March, start of April, off to the South Island chasing tar and just the places you can go hunting and just that. With a bow. I took the bow there, but I ended up rifle hunting. So <laughs> it's. I was like, sheesh, man. That's, that's, look, anyone who takes a freaking tar with a bow is unfreaking oh, believable. There, I know a few, few guys that have done it and 
they've done Holy it repeat, smokes. done it repeatedly. Um, you know, they take a, a tar or two a year with a bow, which is just incredible. It's it, it blew my mind getting into that country. I'm just like, there's no way I'm I'm getting a tar with a bow out here unless I'm, I'm spending a week. So, well, you've also got to you know that's the thing with the bow is that to get in, into where they live every day is a mission and a half. And then to just like have a stalk fail multiple times a day, it would almost be like you'd, you'd throw the bow down the mountain. Oh, a hundred percent. It's just insane. And being from an area that doesn't have very high altitude, the altitude killed me over there. By the time, mm. the, t- the time I got up the hill, there was no way I was going to draw back the bow anyway. <laughs> Jeez, dude. But yeah, going back from there, you know, New Zealand has a, an amazing model. They have tons of public land for, you know, everyone to just go and recreate on, you know. They got all the huts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. We stayed at mm-hmm. a hunt, we were eating tar, and then a couple of backpackers passed through and stayed at the hunt at the hut. So we were sharing tar meat with these backpackers from mm-hmm. Sweden and the Netherlands and just chatting, chatting about it all. It was, it was incredible. But, you know, coming back over to here and including New Zealand, like certain biologists, well, biologists look at it as any animal that's not meant to be on the landscape is causing harm. You know, whether you're managing it or not and, you know, you're managing for quote-unquote trophy animals you're still having saplings destroyed. You're still having, um, you know, animals wallowing and destroying waterways. You know, Australia and New Zealand have a unique ecosystem where, you know, all of our animals, none of them have hard hooves. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. do as much damage to the environment as the introduced species do, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and the governments that are trying to eradicate these animals, they're not wanting them to be managed they're wanting them off of the landscape so it, it's hard to say go to a management aspect with them when their goal is eradication well the, that goal is impossible it, no animal is ever going to get eradicated anytime soon in any landscape let's be honest um maybe pests you know the technology may be there for rats and mice and stoats and whatnot which is the kinds of pests we want to gone yeah you know but you're never going to get rid of all the tar. You're never going to get rid of all the fallow deer. You're never going to get rid of all the pigs. You know, it's, it's this, you're never going to get, I'll be even more controversial. You're not never going to get rid of all the brumbies. No. <laughs> okay. So eradication is a moot point. It should never even come up in conversations in terms of population. It should be all about management and managing to correct levels. And then it's just a question of like, how does that management occur? Does it occur via helicopter gunning? Does it happen via commercial shooting? Does it happen via poisoning? Does it happen via recreational hunting? Management is needed, period. Um, So when, again, that's the, so when coming back to the South Australia bow hunting ban, it's almost like, you, you're going to need to manage these animals somehow, people, right? Let's let's be honest here. You can't just let them be. Bow hunting, yeah, it's not the management tool. You're not going to manage the population. But, you know, a couple of hundred animals, a couple of thousand animals are going to be taken by a bow probably every year. 
okay, that's it. Maybe it's a percent of the population that gets taken, or, or two or three percent. Okay. Um, that's 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 something, right? It is. And and the best thing about it, it's getting utilized. They're, the hunters taking it and the meat's being utilized. Whether they're just taking back straps, whether they're taking back legs, whether they're taking the whole animal, it's being more utilized than when the animals are getting shot out of a helicopter. When they're, you know, it's, it's not like, say, Texas, where, you know, some of these places they go out and clean up all the hogs after they helicopter shoot them and they get as many as they can and then they go feed like they take them to get processed and then feed homeless people with it you know these animals mm-hmm. are getting shot in the hundreds and they're getting left there to rot which is just causing well all again sorts you of don't problems. have a you don't have a mechanism to get that that kind of food into the food chain right that's yeah. the problem um where in new zealand you can um you can take the wapiti that are shot, gather them up, helicopter them out, and get them utilized into the homeless shelters, into food banks, that kind of stuff. It would be amazing if we could do that here. And that that's the only benefit I could see of mass helicopter culling the way they do it, is if they were able to, you know, the homeless problem's not, you know, horrendous in, but you don't in see, South But you don't Australia. see the benefit to the environment? You you do, but you've also got, you know, food laying around for foxes, wild dogs and cats as well. So having all this meat just laying around, you're getting all these other predators that are getting a free feed source and then their yep. numbers are doubling as well. It's look, I That makes sense. That makes sense. I love conservation, I love hunting, and it's for me it's always been a fine balance in between. You know, growing up Steve Irwin was my idol. But he was also a pig hunter. He he dogged pigs for croc bait. You know, man, his hun- family has certainly turned on hunting, hey? Oh my god, I I would love just to have a conversation with him. You know, Bob Bob would be on our side, but you know, getting <laughs> getting Terry and and the kids on board, it would be um, you know, even to convince Robert into you know letting people. Uh, you know, hunt pigs on his his patches of property he has set aside for conservation. You know, it'd be an incredible game changer getting them to yeah, talk yeah. about it. But yeah, it's 100%. just it's just always been a fine balance. Like going to school, like I'd go hunt goats with my grandparents on the weekend. I would go fishing. You know, I'd come back and I'd have a goat skull from you know mm-hmm. hunting with my pop or a goat skin or a fox skin, and that would be my show mm-hmm. and tell on Monday. So, you know, mm-hmm. all these kids are bringing toys and whatever. I'm <laughs> I'm bringing animal skins and animal skulls and all of that type of stuff and then always having to explain to my my teachers and the other students that, you know, this is conservation and then I'd do projects on, you know, rabbits and camels and donkeys and why they're destroying the the ecosystem. And so it's always been a fine line. <laughs> for me as a hunter between conservation and then the love of these animals that have been introduced here, you know, without deer, without ferret, without goats, without all of these animals, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have a freezer full of amazing venison, you know? Yeah. 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 Like cats and pigs. I'd click that button to get rid of them off the landscape. Deer. I would, I would not, I would, 
You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I always want deer on the landscape for me, for my children, for my future family. You know, there's just that they're a beautiful creature. Well, they're gonna they're gonna be there. They're gonna be there. The problem is whether you'll have the opportunity to chase them or not. Yes, and it's all all going down that that path. Unfortunately, um, there's a constant you know constant battle as you're seeing between all of these different agencies coming after it. So let's get onto a little bit of a happier thing. We'll get onto a few, a few, <laughs> a few, a few different um, bits and pieces I have here to to ask you. So, you know, what would be your top beginner tip for someone getting into hunting? Top beginner tip of someone getting into hunting. Um, I don't know, man. Like I. My, the thing that comes into my brain is almost like don't take it too seriously. But then again, if I remember as a youngster, like I didn't take it seriously, but maybe I wasn't influenced by social media in terms of if so if you're getting if you're in getting into it because you're influenced by social media, don't take it too seriously. Um, but I think the you know easiest beginner tip is like I think find someone. like if you could find someone to take you, like you're not going to have much frustrations. There's going to be frustrations, but not as many as you would if you're going by yourself. Because I think I know a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm going to get into hunting. They go by themselves and two or three times later, they're like, oh, I'm giving up because they just have no idea what to do and how to do it. Whereas that if they went with someone, they would have figured it out very quickly and then be more proficient themselves. Plus, they got they would have reaped the rewards of of hunting in terms of the meat and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, mentorship is a that's what I would say is is a, definitely a great way for it. Um, you know, you've you've seemed to have traveled traveled around a bit and f- been on a few yeah. different hunts with with people from all over and all walks of walks of life. What would be like the funniest thing that's happened to you out on on one of these hunting trips? And the funniest thing that's happened to me. Um, I will say this, literally, I think it just happened in New Zealand. Um, we were in tar camp with Snow Hewitson um, filming his Blood Origins episode. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Po- animals in different parts of the world mean different things. Possums in Australia are like protected species. Possums in New Zealand are like <laughs> enemy number one. Actually, I'd say wallabies are enemy number one because there's like signs on the sides of the highway saying, have you seen a wallaby call this number? And we were joking in the vehicle saying, what happens if you call the number and say we spotted a wallaby? It's almost like full police brigade. Oh my God, they called in a wallaby. Come get him. You know, the freaking SWAT team comes in and takes out a wallaby. <laughs> but anyway, possums are like enemy number two. And as we got into tar camp, there was a possum in the chalet with us. And so we were trying to dispatch this possum. And it evaded me. It evaded one of the other guys and was running towards one of the cameramen. And the cameraman just like swung his foot at it. He said, I got a dead foot and I've got it, like this, this possum just like went 180, like three, four times, like tumbling <laughs> through the air and landed and ran off like nothing was wrong. And so he just, he smoked it with his foot. But uh, that was, that's the most recent thing that's in my brain. But um, no, if, you know, we, we have a really good time. Um I remember going when we were chasing buffalo in the Northern Territory, being in one of the springs there. And 
they're like you know you go swim in the springs and this the spring it looked like it was only like 18 inches of water <laughs> but there were these these patches where you could see the sand bubbling and literally when you stood in one of those bubbling pieces of sand you went up to almost like your armpits in water and sand and it was the most eerie feeling in the world because you like were floating um but that was pretty cool that was a that was a fun a fun time but we just have you know that i don't have any like truly i'm sure that there are some because we laugh and laugh and laugh all the time i slipped on my backside coming down from tar from you know when we were in the tar country I, my legs were so tired i was just i must have fallen for eight nine ten times it was just like jack was like you fell more than you walked down that mountain <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, I know. Coming out of tar camp, one of the the Americans that were with us, he just gave up on walking. He sat on his backpack and rode his backpack down the hill. Oh man, <laughs> it's some steep country. He, I'm he, telling he, you, man. He got some speed, but yeah, New Zealanders and possums, man. Uh, the first the first trip I went over was North Island, and every possum that ran out on the road, the guy that I was with just whoop, lined it up, pulled over got out he had this garbage bag under his seat with possum fur in it and he'd just pluck every single possum every single possum that ran on the road he'd hit it and you know at the time they were getting like a hundred and twenty dollars i think a kilo for possum fur so every possum that came out on that road he hit and he plucked it took us you know probably two hours longer than we were supposed to because (laughs) crazy (laughs) but yeah and it's funny that you can pluck it yeah, I I didn't expect it. I was like, he's like, oh, I'm just going to pluck this possum. I'm like, you mean skin? And he's like, no, pluck it. And then started pulling yeah, the fur it. out. And yeah, that trip. Yeah, it's crazy. That tripped me out. It's not something I expected. So, you know, you've traveled a bit. Um, you know, you've been hunting with others. Do you have like a top five dream animal list or? Yeah, I'm, so my grandfather was a big buffalo hunter. And so um, he hunted Cape buffalo a lot, but he never hunted any of the other buffalo. So I have this like desire to hunt all the buffalo of the world. And I want to hunt it with a 416 Rigby open sights. So I've done the Australian buffalo. I've done the Argentinian buffalo. Um, So in that category would be the Cape buffalo. There's all the buffalo species of Africa. So there's there's the Cape buffalo, the Nile buffalo, the Western Savannah Buffalo, the Dwarf Pygmy Buffalo, I believe. Um, then there's the Muskox. We'll do that in Greenland. Obviously, American Bison. Um, I believe there's another subspecies, not subspecies, but just the same Asiatic water buffalo that lives on the Brazilian-Bolivian border that is in the swamps that are just monster buffaloes. That's awesome. Um, what else? Um I, I wouldn't mind I, I I've done a scrub bull, so that would be part of the I haven't done a bang tang. Um I heard there's some there's some big feral cattle in South Texas. There's also feral cattle in New Zealand, in yeah. North Island, New Zealand. Um Yeah, so those are the things that I would those would be my things that I want to chase. So bovine style. That's the yeah, like bovine slam. style. World slam. Yeah. That's awesome. Exactly. Exactly. 
That that's awesome. Yeah, the I haven't encountered water buffalo yet out hunting. That's that's definitely on my list, dude. You need to go. You need to go to the north because that's something you can bow hunt legitimately. Yeah, they're they're a bow hunter's dream. That's for sure. Did you go out with? Was it Harry Stenton? Was yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was Harry and True Wild. He had just been there, been there almost like just a year when we got there with him. So he's going gangbusters now. So, yeah, I think about three or four of the past guests that have hunted buffalo have all all hunted with Harry. So that's that, awesome. That, there's been some great support for him, and he's getting some people on some amazing animals. Oh yeah. So, what about favorite thing to cook with hunted game? What's your what's your go to recipe? Um, just a good tenderloin, you know, just cooked low and slow, get to 120 and then reverse sear it and cut it just like filet mignon. Um, I like an Asian stir fry as well. So slice it, slice venison, super thin, marinate it, and then put it with a frozen vegetable mix with peanut butter and teriyaki sauce or whatnot. And makes like a, you know, peanuts Asian style, uh, stir fry Um, and then i'm a big fan of just making biltong and jerky with meat so i've got like three packets defrosting right now (laughs) that i'm going to slice up today and marinate and because i finally got my family my kids love it my wife loves it and my father-in-law and brother-in-law actually are starting to eat it now because they're like man what is this i said it's whitetail they're like oh man that's really really good so Oh, Plus, it's a good way to get stuff out of the freezer because hunting season is five months away, so I need to start like piling through the meat now. Biltong's amazing. It's definitely a, um underrated way of of doing oh meat. Oh, my gosh. It's, especially like yeah. when you get it just right where it's still a little bit gooey in the middle. And That's right. Just, oh, that's right. Just perfect. Um, So this is something that's right up your alley, and it's something that I ask, everyone that comes on these next couple questions. How do you see the public views on hunting? You know, you seem to go around around the world. What is your, how do you see, think people perceive I hunting? think it's definitely changing. I think, I think the tide is turning. I think that, you know, I'll say maybe a little bit from a blood origins perspective is, is sort of pervading into the hunting community space, but you're seeing more, people talk about food you're talking more people talking about adventure it's not so much all about the trophy and the kill anymore though you still have a lot of that there's a lot more of the other stuff now a lot of people are um the locavore movement is really helping the hunting narrative all around the world um you're seeing much bigger 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 names come out saying that they're hunters you know it's you know in australian landscape um you know, Israel Adesanya, Iggy, the UFC fighter, he showed everyone he hunted. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> and a lot of people are doing that. Rich Fronin, 10 times CrossFit world champion, huge, huge, huge following. Just said everybody, I'm, I'm a hunter. So I think a lot of these people are starting to do that. And we want more and more and more of the mainstream community to say, yes, I'm a hunter. Um, so I think the narrative's changing. I think that people are valuing hunting differently and because of that, that narrative is starting to show through all around the world. Definitely. How would you change the public views on hunting and hunters? I think it's the same way as any bad apple 
in any industry, right? Baseball, for instance, hasn't got this moniker that everyone's a steroid user. Just a couple of bad apples use steroids, but it doesn't sort of blanket over the rest of the community. So the same thing with hunting is that I think we've got to recognize that that's what we would need to change is that, yes, we've got some bad apples. We've got some yobbos that like to do illegal stuff and maybe not just illegal stuff, just legal hunting, but then just don't show any respect for the animal and portray it and portray the action of hunting in a very, very bad light that then sort of that stink gets on everyone else. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're ever going to change it because, because you're in the business, we're in the business of killing animals. Um, and I don't think that's ever going to change that narrative. I think just pushing more and more positive stuff out there to counter that one, you know, that often negative piece, that's the key is that for every, you know, one post that is a, a terrible trophy kill, you've got a hundred posts out there that are about, the adventure, the people, the relationships, the food, um, you know, all the elements that we know we love about hunting. Yeah, exactly. One thing you mentioned on an episode that I was listening to as I was coming out of the, the Tar Mountains, you know, I had headphones on and just plodding along listening to you and Kai Fano having a discussion about the whole bow hunting ban in South Australia and the ducks and all of that type of stuff. And you mentioned, you know, the the aunties get billboards up all the time. It's something that yeah, we yeah, see yeah. over here. When are we going to see a Blood Origins billboard for pro hunting and how would you approach it if you were to well, do something about, like that? It's all about money. Right? Yeah. You have to raise the money. Um, and honestly, you know, you may not actually know that it's a blood origins billboard. And I think that's the difference between, you know, RSPCA is putting up billboards so that they can generate money for themselves. I think we just need to, you know, it's either a billboard. I, I honestly want to like in the newspapers, especially Victorian newspapers, I've always wanted, and maybe 2024 is the, is the time that we try and do it, but I've always wanted to try and get a newspaper ad in The Age or whatever the big newspapers are in Victoria preceding duck season and run it for like a month in which all it is, it shows like the benefit, like, I don't know, wholesome meals or good protein or wetland restoration and conservation you know those elements those those things that people can relate to and they're like oh hunters are doing that versus the 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 duck in a coffin ad that <laughs> rspca is putting out there in the in the newspapers and i you know i think that you know a lot of people are like well you know they won't publish it you know i was like well it's all money at the end of the day it's business so if you've got the money to pay for an ad they may run it. I just don't think anyone has ever approached them to think about um, doing it. So it just it's just money. That's all it is, is raising enough money to be able to, you know, because I think we we looked into it. The age, like a quarter page ad in the age for, I think it was 48 hours online and in the, it's like, four and a half thousand Aussie or six and a half thousand Aussie. It was expensive. Yeah. 
or 8,000 Aussie, something crazy. I was like, holy smokes. Yeah, and so, that's that's the thing. Those those organizations have the backing. You know, they, they put a couple of cute animals up and say, we're saving these, and bam, the money just rolls in. Where, you know, trying to get, you know, money for pro hunting is just a bit, a bit different and hunters right. and shooters tend to be all, you know, help me, help me, but no one wants to help themselves by putting into an organization either a lot of the time. Right, you know, right, right. Where Blood Origins is, is slow, slowly changing that, which is, which is just amazing. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I slowly did, but surely. I did think that's something that stuck to me, that discussion um, you and Kai had about that. So, um, you know, every time I drive past a billboard, and it's big in South Australia and Adelaide here, there's at least one billboard every couple of months that's, you know, an anti-eating meat billboard funded mm. by the RSPCA or Animal Liberation, like whoever it is. But, yeah, so that, that's something that just stuck me. Stuck with me, like how how would you personally go around it, and what type of image one day, you would portray? One day, don't don't you know? One day, as soon as I get the money, we'll get it done. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely keen to see that, and I can't wait for people to take pictures of it. Oh, if, if one pops up over here, I'll, I'll drive there just to get a photo with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the end of the day, you know, you love hunting, all of that this is very similar to your question, like your why, what is hunting to you? Uh, you know, hunting to me is an opportunity to, at, at, at my moment, my junction in life is to sort of escape the business of life is to like turn the phone off, not be engaged on the phone, forget about social media. You're sort of in the present moment for the first time in a long time. You're not thinking about things. Um, it's also there's there's a lot of adventure to hunting for me right now. Um, you know, meeting good people, interacting in the landscapes that they love so much, like Snow Hewitson and Tar Mountains, Nick and the hunter chasing pigs. You know, it's meeting those people and in, in, and exploring the environments that they love so much. Um, that to me is sort of the real draw card to hunting right now uh yeah the benefit is taking an animal at the end of the day um but really it's the places and the people right now that are just like fantastic and why sort of my why around hunting right now yeah it's it's funny like i, I pretty much say this at the end of every podcast but everyone's hunting to them um all relates to that, you know, camaraderie with people that they're hunting with, being out in nature. Not often is it about taking the animal. It's all about being just out in the in the wilderness and sharing that camaraderie with whoever they're going out with, which is is just incredible to hear because it's if someone that doesn't hunt is listening to this, that they get to the end of the podcast and it just it might change their perspective on hunting and hunters which is something I, you know, I aim for, you know, every, like I, I deliver plasterboard for a living. I drive a little truck to job sites mm-hmm. delivering plasterboard. Um, and, you know, people, what did you get up to on the weekend? Oh, I went hunting. And they're like, you know, they're always step back and start asking questions. And I explain cool. everything, everything we've chat about and everything you chat about and get out there and 
you know, it, it's it's cool to just see the clocks ticking in people's mind and then they start asking how to get into it. You know, it's hunting to totally. me. Hunting to me is a, you know, just a lifestyle. It's as much as I breathe is as much as I'm thinking about <laughs> hunting and getting yeah. out. So, I, yeah, agreed. I really appreciate you coming on, um, you know, getting up early. It's, it's always a little bit difficult to try and get these these no, it's uh, all good these us podcasts done you know um being 17 hours time difference but yeah i i really appreciate it you're someone that i've i've really wanted on for a long time so i really appreciate you taking the time oh, out anytime of your busy schedule to come on and all the great work that you're doing for hunting and conservation around the world you know like you know i was, I was thinking about it i don't know if it's too too soppy saying but you know you're like the modern day teddy roosevelt for hunting and conservation (laughs) (laughs) well uh, man thank you no but i'm nowhere near that um you know we'll get there we'll get there but right now we just we just push that's all we do is we just push every single day and that's all we need is just keep doing is that just constant consistent persistent push so if people want, if they're not already following with following you, which I'm sure they are, how can they, you know, support the cause and yeah. where do they need to go? You know, you can find Blood Origins anywhere. Just type it into your Google or Instagram or Facebook. Um, I know that, you know, Australians typically aren't the most philanthropic individuals in the world. Um, neither are New Zealanders. Uh, but if you can spare at the cost of a cup of coffee a month, um we'd be very appreciative and you can do that you know through a credit card support on our website um or you could do it you know one-time payment a year you know if you've got a hundred bucks you're like oh we're gonna give i'd love to put down a hundred bucks and we'll give you a hundred bucks a year and just do it as a one-time annual payment man that just helps us get closer and closer to that billboard goal (laughs) that we're interested in doing um but john if you if you don't have money or you don't feel like giving money uh, then just share the content. That's all you need to do is share content. That's the best way that you can help engage um, and help our message from a from a hunting perspective is share good content. So, yeah, that's how you can support us. Awesome, Robbie. Again, thank you very much, mate. You're welcome, my man. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. Please head over to our social media and give us a follow. Instagram at Hunting Connection Podcast, Facebook at Hunting Connection Podcast, Twitter at Hunting Connect, TikTok at Hunting Connection Podcast. If you've enjoyed, please share with your friends and family, tag us in your photos and videos on social media, subscribe, rate and review to help grow the podcast. If you're interested in giving additional support to the podcast you can head over to our podcast patreon page thank you very much for listening and catch you next episode